0: Hello and welcome to this special episode of the John Henry Weston Show. At LifeSite, we just ran a spectacular conference on vaccines, which dealt with all the controversies around COVID, the vaccinations, masking, lockdowns, and much more. By popular demand, we are leaving the conference videos up till the end of the week. Please go to LifeSiteNews.com, click on the banner at the top of the page to access the conference videos. My guest today follows perfectly on the heels of the vaccine conference. Dr. Carmen Wheatley is a medical researcher specializing in cobalamin and director of the cancer charity Orthomolecular Oncology. She's speaking to us today about a promising treatment for COVID, which you've likely never heard of. You're going to want to stay tuned. <music> Let's begin, as we always do, at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Dr. Carmen Wheatley, thank you so much for joining us on the program.
1: It's a pleasure. It's a great honor, actually. I'm a big fan of yours, John Henry.
0: (laughs) Praise God. Well, it's very interesting what you have told me about, which uh, we're able to now bring to everyone. It is a treatment for COVID, but this is going to sound, I think, for many people as a shock because what your research has been uh, in is a treatment for something called sepsis. So maybe you can start there. You know what? In fact, I'm going to get you to start. I, I gave a little bit about your background, but if you can give us a little bit more about your background and how it applies to what you're doing right now.
1: Well, my background is actually rather maverick because I started off in the arts and literature and even a little bit of theology. And then probably about 20 years ago, because of certain things that happened to do with my old professor at Oxford, I'd always been interested in science. I then moved across to do research and learn biochemistry and medicine and so forth. I'm not a I'm obviously an academic doctor rather than a medical doctor. Um, but I think this has given me a slight advantage in my work because uh, I'm not classically trained, but I do have the ability to uh, find things in foreign languages. And in my field, vitamin B12 cobalamin, there is a treasure trove of clinical literature in foreign languages, and in the English-speaking world, there is a sort of prejudice that if something isn't published or known about in English, it isn't really science or medicine. But in point of fact, in the period from 1950, which was very shortly, about a year after vitamin B12 was isolated from liver, from 1950 to probably 1980... There is a very interesting period in Europe, Russia, Japan, elsewhere, where doctors are actually using B- B12 not just for the classic uh, deficiency of B12, which is pernicious anemia, which in its day was as bad as cancer. In fact, it was a death sentence. But they try it for absolutely everything. They use it for episodes of schizophrenia, for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, in the 1950s, they use it to treat polio because B12 is essential for neurological problems. Uh, they use it for uh, leprosy and for uh, palliative care. They are able to wean. And there's a study in a Brazilian Portuguese um, hospital where Uh, end-stage cancer patients are actually weaned off their morphine using very high doses of B12. I began to read the literature much more widely, and I came across the use of B12 as a cyanide treatment in France and Italy and certain other countries. And what struck me in the use of very high-dose intravenous B12 cobalamin for the treatment of cyanide poisoning was that there were many analogies with septic shock. And not only that, that when people were treated and were rescued with this therapy, they walked out of intensive care within days without any kind of after effects, which is not what you see in sepsis. From there, um, I then began to, I, I published a hypothesis. I then met up with, in a, Conference on Inflammation in London, I met up with a professor from the William Harvey Institute. And he and a colleague became interested and we designed studies together and began a a long collaboration, which is in fact still ongoing. So that gives you a little bit of my background.
0: Right. Now, how does this sepsis, uh, first of all, if you could define what is sepsis for us, but then how does it relate to COVID?
1: If you are end-stage sepsis, you have serial organ failure and very often the liver, the kidneys and the lungs will fail. And if the lungs fail, then you get that acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, The other thing is that um, the immune system, when it goes wrong, fundamentally doesn't have many ways of going wrong. There is a pattern. And if you want me to explain sepsis very simply, I have to explain the normal function of the immune system. Mm-hmm. Now, in a normal immune response, you have two phases. And in the first phase, you have a, a, pro, a pro-inflammatory phase. So your immune system will actually produce a certain amount of pro-inflammatory hormones, which are called cytokines. And But at the same time, as it starts doing that, it will also start producing some anti-inflammatory hormones, but in very, very low doses. Now, when you get to the peak of the immune response, there's a switchover. So you get decreasing uh, inflammatory factors and increasing anti-inflammatory factors. It's as simple as that in one way. It's like a seesaw. But if that doesn't happen, then you get sepsis. You just get, you know, ever-increasing um, inflammatory circles.
0: So people who die of COVID... Uh, are are really dying of sepsis because that's the way it shuts, uh, the the body is shutting down from COVID. Um, how then does this B12 injection or via IV help the situation?
1: Well, one of the things my colleagues and I, but not just my colleagues and I, there there is another group in Milan uh, headed by a neurologist called Giuseppe Scalabrino. And he and his group have discovered that cabalamin B12 regulates certain pro-inflammatory factors that kick in uh, in a bad way when you have, you know, sepsis. And uh, so we've discovered in animal experiments that the pro-inflammatory hormones, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, that these are extremely well regulated by cobalamin. Uh, because it also regulates a gas called na- nitric oxide, which is as essential to life as oxygen.
0: Let me stop you there really quick, to just to make sure everybody understands. Cobalamin is B12, right? That's what we're talking about. That's,
1: that's correct, yes. Right. There are various forms of it in the cell, in the body. You, you tend to find um, two active forms, methylcobalamin and adenosylcobalamin, and then there's a, some hydroxocobalamin, And another reason is that it regulates the immune system. Now, in COVID, uh, when people are very sick, you find that they have very low numbers of what are known as natural killer cells. And one thing that is known, and there are a lot of studies on uh, B12 deficient people, is that when you give B12, natural killer cells are boosted. You also find that T cells, which is a form of a white cell, are also depleted in advanced COVID, and we know that vitamin B12, cobalamin, actually boosts the uh, T cells, and it corrects the ratio of helper and killer T cells as well, and it is also absolutely crucial for the production of antibodies. So if we're talking about vaccines, a vaccine is only as good as the immune system that it challenges. And if that immune system is deficient in cobalamin B12, it will not mount such a good response. And there have been a couple of studies in this field with cobalamin in the past. And it was even used as a vaccine adjuvant in 1960 for children with diphtheria. Um, so this, this is also known. Um, so does, there's a lot of argument for, for its use simply on grounds of the immune regulatory effects.
0: We're not talking about the use of regular B12. So people aren't to go home and, and buy a bottle of the B12 pills and start taking those?
1: No, um, there's a real problem with absorption of B12 by mouth. So if you take a dose of B12 by mouth, you're going to absorb about 1% to 2% of it. And if you think, oh, I'll get round this by taking a much higher dose, you, in point of fact, paradoxically, will absorb even less. Mm. Um, There is a slight exception to this nowadays. There is a form of oral B12 called liposomal B12, in which the B12 is encapsulated in a sort of lipid sphere. And... My observation is that this does have a much higher degree of absorption, but I still would not use it in an emergency. However, that said, if you think you have COVID, there will be absolutely no harm in taking... In fact, I I will recommend it, that you get yourself some liposomal B12 as methylcobalamin and take it, just as I would also say, will take a loading dose of vitamin D, because that's also known to be extremely helpful. And right. there has, in fact, been a trial in Singapore using oral B12 with oral vitamin D. Uh, and this was this last year for COVID, COVID. Oral B12, oral vitamin D and magnesium. So it was just an oral cocktail mm-hmm. and it was a controlled trial. And this is the interesting thing. The people who received the cocktail did not end up in intensive care. They were in hospital, but they didn't need oxygen. They didn't end up in the ICU. The people Mm -hmm. who didn't,
0: needed oxygen and were in the ICU in the end. What kind of dosages are you talking about with regard to that study and the oral only? Oral only, you
1: probably would get about, I don't know what you'd really, I don't think anybody really knows how much you can get in with a liposomal form of oral B12. But my observation is that people have a sort of energy response to taking it, which is the kind of response you get from uh, a B12 injection because B12 is essential for energy pathways. So if you have an injection of B12, you have a sort of high from, you know, an energetic boost. In terms of what you would use in hospital um, or even injecting at home if your doctor would prescribe it, uh, I'm talking about 25, depending because it is a little bit weight-dependent. If you're treating a child, you would use less. Um, 50,000 micrograms, um, which you could get if you have a, a concentration of 25,000 per mil, it's 2 mil, that would be 2, 1 mil insulin syringes, could be given at home. Uh, and will probably stop people ending up in hospital if they use it on a daily basis.
0: And the safety of this uh, is known, even even in its injected form or IV form, is is already known?
1: Yes. In fact, the safety data goes back about half a century. Um, in terms of the injectable form and uh, and the dose that I'm uh, suggesting would be effective, which which is also incidentally based on the studies that I did with colleagues at the William Harvey Institute. Um, That form is currently being tested in Japan in a clinical trial for motor neuron disease. But the Japanese already tested it uh, way back in the mid-1990s for six months. Daily injections of that dose and. Nobody died. Nobody killed over. Nobody had any negative side effects.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: so, so that. But the the much higher doses that are used for cyanide, these there's there's reams of pharmacological safety data, going back half a century because it's been used in the clinic and uh, people have initially studied it in dogs and you know larger larger animals and and then uh, uh, in the clinic. Um, I think if you have very, very poor kidney function, that might be a counterindication for the high dose intravenous amount. Mm -hmm. Um, In hospital, if people came into hospital and you wanted to stop them getting into the ICU, I would say try the 50,000 microgram dose on a daily
0: basis until you see people turning the corner and leaving hospital. Wow. Now, this seems like a fairly straightforward treatment, a rather simple treatment compared to even what's out there right now. Um, very if comparable, I guess, to the treatment uh, via ivermectin or HCQ. Um, but there's no big reception for these things. Um, if you could speak to that for a minute, just about the lack of reception to this at the time when it seems everyone would need it.
1: This is a problem really, because it has more to do with the whole mindset of health and welfare agencies worldwide everywhere Um, we're dominated by the big pharma paradigm and we've actually forgotten that the history of medicine teaches us that sometimes the solution to something that's quite heinous or or very difficult is something very simple or something that's in front of our eyes i mean if you take scurvy for example the cure for scurvy was known, I think, in by the Chinese. as a Chinese monk who wrote about it in their era around about 400. Yeah, and then yeah. it was known and forgotten about repeatedly. Uh, people always think about, oh, it was Lind, it was the limes for scurvy, but it wasn't actually. Before that, there were Portuguese. Vasco da Gama knew about the importance of taking oranges and lemons on his expedition, um, There were Spaniards who knew. Uh, Lind had quite a fight, and it it took centuries of repeatedly forgetting. Uh, Then you have things like uh, childbed fever, puerperal fever, as it was called. Uh, Women in childbirth used to die up up and, well, not so long ago, really, because physicians would go from one bed to another in a hospital examining children, uh, women who'd had children, And they didn't realize they were carrying bacteria from one woman to another. And along came two people. One, in America, it was Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And he said, you have to wash your hands. And he was derided. And why was he derided? Because apparently gentlemen have clean hands and doctors are gentlemen, and so they didn't need to wash their hands. And then later on in Austria... In Austria, there was uh, another doctor called Semmelweis, and he realised that the germs were being carried from woman to woman in child in child in in you know, by the physicians, and begged them to wash their hands. He did his own study; he showed that it it seemed to make a difference, but again he was derided, and in fact he ended up very badly. His colleagues had him certified, and he died of sepsis in an asylum. Oh gosh. I know, it's a terrible story. There's one terrible story after another. Then there's sort of brown rice for pellagra and beriberi, and there's vitamin A for the measles blindness in the third world. There is the story of yellow fever in Philadelphia, where there was a Cuban doctor called Carlos Carlos Finlay in Cuba, and he was telling people for 25 years the mosquitoes are the vector. And that's how long it took. I mean, uh, so so, this is history repeating itself, I think. Wow. That we once knew it, actually. Around about 1950, shortly after B12 was isolated from liver, um, there was an editor of a very prestigious international journal, which is still ongoing now, Blood. And that editor wrote, he said, we have now the appearance of something of almost incredible potency... He said, an absolute minimal dose and you get a full response in someone with pernicious anemia within days and the whole of the blood is regenerated, the whole of the immune system. And he said, has there ever been in medicine anything so potent as this microgram for microgram? And after that, people in Europe, in Japan, in Russia, in North and South America, Used B twelve. They tried it on everything, and there are a lot of success stories which have been forgotten about.
0: How practical is this for um, doctors to do today? Uh, a, a patient feels they have COVID, calls the doctor. You got to help me. I heard about this thing. Uh, you know this treatment with B twelve. Is it is it actually doable that they can get? what they need right now to treat themselves either at home or or in a doctor's office?
1: I think it's very doable. I I think if a patient wants to just help themselves and they're not serious enough to get into hospital, Mm -hmm. I would recommend that they get some liposomal B12 as methylcobalamin to begin with. If they're deteriorating but they're not at the hospital stage, I mean, we do need a complete... Minds change here in uh, in the medical profession because most doctors only know about B12 and its uses for pernicious anemia. Mm-hmm. And to cure pernicious anemia, you just need a relatively low injected dose. You don't need the kinds of high doses I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. The high doses, they they make a big difference. And there are studies, for example, I'm going to tell you about a study in rats where the rats were, they had their paws injured so that the nerves were damaged. And they were given a dose by injection, not by injection, but the rat equivalent, that was higher than the pernicious anemia injectable dose, and it didn't have an effect. And then they were given a super-astronomic dose, and that made all the difference. So one has to go on upwards i mean you wouldn't use a low dose of b12 as a cyanide antidote the reason there is an astronomic dose for that is because you have to kind of match the power of the cyanide with a, a certain amount of the cobalt in your system the cobalt that is the heart of the b12 if you want something that's going to pull somebody right back from the edge what I would do is to use the very high-dose intravenous B12, mm. which is available in one form as the anticyanide kit. It's called Cyanokit and uh, is made by, now made by a North American company. It used to be made by Merck. But ideally, you would use one of the active forms of cobalamin, and that's methylcobalamin. And for that, you would have to have that supplied by a compounding pharmacy. But there are compounding pharmacies in North America and Europe and elsewhere. And uh, India and China are actually some of the great producers of methylcobalamin, by the way.
0: This treatment, would it be very expensive? Or is this, uh, you know, because the one of the treatments I think that President Trump received, I think, it was $3,000 a dose. Um, what are we talking here for this uh, treatment with uh, vitamin D- B12 injections or, or IV um, or via IV?
1: If we're talking about two mil injections, a 30 mil vial costs uh, in the region of 200 pounds. That's with markups, you know, from doctors, et cetera. So you can calculate backwards. My maths is not very good. Um, the... Um, Cyanokit is overpriced and this is another reason I'm actually advocating methylcobalamin because I know that it costs a fraction of, of the cost of the cyanokit. The only thing is that the cyanokit hydroxocobalamin is actually licensed and methylcobalamin I think would be treated as experimental so that would be another difference.
0: If people wanted to reach out to Dr. Wheatley, where could they do that?
1: I have a website, um, canceraction.org.gg, uh, currently being overhauled, so it, it should be up shortly.
0: And also, I wanted to know, what else would you like to uh, bring to our listeners about uh, this treatment and about, um, about COVID in general?
1: If we had a really successful treatment for COVID... It would completely take the pressure off the vaccination end of the treatment uh, approach to COVID. And I think people could get back to normal quickly. Um, The other thing is that the economic cost of cabalamin versus drugs would be a huge factor across the world for governments everywhere because I say that, you know... The pandemic is the straw that broke the camel's back in respect of healthcare systems everywhere. Before COVID, you know, we already had a growing crisis across the world with um, economics of how healthcare systems are managed and run. Simply because we have all these epidemics that people don't mention. We have dementia. Uh, which I believe is something like 50 million and rising. We have uh, type 2 diabetes, an explosion of that. We have uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We have things like 873 million people in the world with hepatitis, various different kinds of hepatitis. We also have a third of the world infected with TB, And we are now at the end of the golden era of antibiotics and well into the era of antibiotic resistance. And we have increasing problems with extremely drug-resistant TB. We have increasing uh, depression and mental health problems in the world. And because most health care systems everywhere are dominated by the drug paradigm, they are being bankrupted. Governments are coming to the point where the pressure, the economic pressure, is going to have to make them think we need to take a different approach to health so that the burden does not fall so much on them people need to be better educated, but also we need to um, take advantage of some of the, the, sim- the so-called simple things. I mean, vitamin B12 isn't simple at all. It's actually the most complex molecule in nature. And I think that just as in life, you know, character often determines one's destiny. I think in chemistry, structure tells you something about the potency. And so this this is no ordinary vitamin. It's a central regulator of inflammation and the immune response. And it is possible to use it for a whole host of things that people have not really tapped into the full potential of. And I include cancer in that story.
0: Here's a, a question then. I guess this really does come down to the heart of the matter. With the pharmaceutical industries just being absolute monsters with regard to what's going on in the medical world, and we, as we've seen over this last year especially, even doing their best to shut down other possible treatments they're involved in politics they have lobbyists who are doing all sorts of things able to basically close off avenues to other treatments that they don't like because either they're not not going to work for their profit or whatever motive they might have Um, when and where do you see us or how do you see us getting out of this mess
1: doctors can use things on compassionate grounds if someone's at the point of death In America, we know that Trump introduced the right to try. In the UK, we have uh, provision made in the Greater Medical uh, London guidelines, in the the GMC guidelines, for uh, non-standard use of drugs and experimental therapies where there is no uh, standard therapy for something. Mm -hmm. I, I think... Doctors have to take courage and say, well, there's no downside to this. Uh, We'll do it, we'll try it. You know, if someone's dying, why not? There's very little to lose if uh, something that has a very safe profile. Um, There there is something else I'd like to tell you about vitamin Mm -hmm. B12. It has a sort of central ring, which is like a warped cross, in a way, and the heart of 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 the ring is a cobalt atom, and then it has... A sort of upper and a lower arm and the upper arm is variable so you can have cyanide latching onto the cobalt you can have methyl groups it, it changes the lower arm is what is known as a nucleotide and if I were to show you a picture of that it looks pretty much like most of the antiviral or antiretroviral drugs on the market and not only is B12-cobalamin a central regulator of the immune system, it actually has a known or hidden history, I would say. Uh, some of it is known, some of it is hidden. I I'm uncovered quite a lot of it recently as an antiviral. Mm. So historically, we know that it has action against influenza A and B, although it was never brought into the clinic, but a lot, of, uh, a certain amount of animal studies were done in the 1950s and then again by the Russians in 1976 we know that it has action against polio against hiv the hiv story is very interesting it also has action against shingles against chickenpox and against the um papilloma virus which is mm-hmm. a non oncogenic virus ie it's cancer causing virus cause of cervical mm-hmm. cancer so part of the reason is it, it has indirect effects through the way it regulates the immune system by regulating the gas nitric oxide, but it also has direct antiviral effects. And in this last year, I have watched, I, I mentioned earlier the trial in Singapore where oral B12 was used, mm-hmm. uh, vitamin D. But there were also a couple of what are known as molecular studies published, And these take, you know, the COVID structure uh, or parts of it and they take whatever structure they want to test and see if they mesh in some way. And two studies showed that methylcobalamin and cyanocobalamin would interfere with COVID directly in a structural fashion. Mm. Uh, This was a surprise to me, given that it has a sort of pleiotropic effect.
0: What does that mean, pleiotropic?
1: multi it has it has effects about against many different so mm-hmm. some of the um, antivirals on the market will only work against some uh, viruses mm-hmm. uh, some will work against a number for instance remdesivir has been you know called into play in covid uh, but obviously wasn't originally designed for covid i think this is a god given antiviral and that it is a pan antiviral and um so so that that adds another strand to the argument as to why it would be effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's data out there published this last year, uh, as well as the kinds of arguments that I've been making, and yet, nobody has taken it further than using it orally in the Singapore trial, and even that was, you know, in combination with vitamin D, which I rate highly as well. Even mm-hmm. that was effective. Uh, so imagine if one went the whole hog and, uh, you know, tried the um, intramuscular or insulin type injections or even intravenous if you had a very acute case.
0: And is this, does this also have then a prophylactic effect? In other words, an effect of taking it to prevent getting the virus or or is it more only for a treatment?
1: I think that it would have a prophylactic effect. And um, in fact, I'm going to say that one of the things that really, really surprised me shortly after uh, governments everywhere started announcing uh, COVID is the lack of advice on how you boost your immune system naturally that people were not given. Mm. And yet, you know, most people know that vitamin C has antiviral effects. Uh, Vitamin D did come into play, and I I believe that in France, uh, when people arrive in hospital with COVID, they're tested for their vitamin D. And if they're found to be low in vitamin D, they're given a loading dose of vitamin D because they know
0: that it makes a difference to outcomes. And what is a loading dose, just so that we know?
1: I'm told that 50,000 IU, which is very, very high, it's not what you would normally take on a daily basis, But, you know, as a one off, I think it's pretty safe. The way to take very high vitamin D, though, is to combine it with a form of vitamin K called vitamin K2, MK7. And that actually makes the high doses very safe. Uh, But on a daily basis, uh, you could do a combination of 10,000 IU vitamin D3 combined with about 500 to 1000 micrograms of K2. And that I think would be a useful thing to do if you want to boost the immune system. And there's no guarantee it's going to stop you getting COVID. But um, the the thing that perturbed me when I realised that um, governments were not issuing this kind of general common sense boost your immune system advice is that Governments seem to act as if they own your immune system and that there is, you know, that you're not safe unless you have treatments, vaccines, etc. But in point of fact, we know, given that most people do rather well with COVID and it's only a small percentage that don't, the immune system does have a big part to play. And what we need to do is uh, fortify the people who are in the at risk categories. Uh, get their systems fortified by doing B12 in liposomal form, taking vitamin C, taking D, and there are other things like selenium and zinc, and there are herbal um, antivirals. There's a whole host of things that one could look into. But to me it was very perturbing, but it does seem to be something to do with the fact that, you know, unless the government tells you, you can't do it.
0: I I think that really does provide people with an enlightening look into uh, vitamin B12 uh, and its uh, possibilities for treatment and um, that really we haven't tapped into yet from from what we've learned from you. Dr. Wheatley, I want to thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. May God bless you. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we're communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to news.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of life site news reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life family and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parlor MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSight News.